The Big Money Music Hour is brought to you by Les Bourgeois Vineyards, featuring a selection of more than 20 different award-winning local wines with varieties that are dry to sweet and everything in between. Les Bourgeois Vineyards are available at their winery in Rocheport, at area retailers, or online at MissouriWine.com. Hello and welcome to the Big Money Music Hour podcast presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards. I'm your host, Colin Lavote, the shameless voice playing what's relevant in music from the country of the Midwest and beyond. And this week, my guest is none other than Julian Baker, the last feather in my boy genius hat. I've had Lucy Dacus on, Phoebe Bridgers, and now Julian. And I have to say, you know, I've, I've, re- this is as far as radio episodes are concerned, my, my 41st radio episode and or interview. And out of the 40 plus hours of content I've created since putting the Big Money Music Hour together last year, I think that this might be the most compelling conversation that I've had. And, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to get better as a, interviewer and I've, I've learned a lot and I, it's a lot of it's just about me getting in the right headspace to talk to people and not letting I don't know my own hang-ups or not insecurities necessarily but you know whenever I, I talked with with Patrick Wilson from Weezer that just kind of was a mind fuck <laughs> you know it's just like oh my god I'm about to you know to talk with with Patrick Wilson and you know, I, I, I'm really happy with how the interview came out. I don't, I'm not not knocking it, but I know whenever I'm firing on all cylinders and it's just natural because that's that's just what it needs to be. That's what a good good radio show or podcast should be. It should just be a natural conversation between between two people. And with this interview, we as you're going to find out, dear listener, we get into the discussion of religion and spirituality, because that's that's a big deal and a big piece of context as it relates to Julian Baker's character and the music that she's created and her background and what, what motivates her. And for the better part of a half hour, we don't even talk about music. We we talk about her religion and or or rather her religious upbringing and just a cult of the religious culture that creates, uh, for lack of a better term, culture wars uh, in terms of how it frames, in particular, the LGBTQ community. So I'm really. I I was taken back. I, I I loved my conversation with Julian. I I felt like I could have talked to her for hours about that subject, and uh, it's it's a good chat. So you know I don't want to take up a bunch of time at the top here, but I do want to ask how you doing. You feeling good? You know, I'm since I'm actually taking the time to do a podcast intro from this and not just kind of cutting together uh, a radio episode. I want to take the opportunity to to welcome you, especially if maybe this is your first time listening to the podcast and give you an idea as to what, what the Big Money Music Hour is all about. You know, I've been playing music for, for two decades, and uh, in particular, I'm a, I'm a, I was brought up and am a huge fan of the Midwest music scene. We have some amazing things happening here, but I wanted to do a show that not only showcased those acts, but also allowed me to talk to some of the people that I really admired on the national scene in hopes that 
whenever their fans tune in, they might tune into the radio show at, when it airs on KBIA.org every week. I also post each radio, each episode as the radio show on BigMoneyMusicHour.com. So if this is your first time listening to the show because you're a Julian Baker fan, I hope you'll check it out. Like I said, we've I've had Lucy Dacus on, Phoebe Bridgers, but you know a, a lot of really other great you know Midwestern acts that really deserve exposure because there's just a ton of talent out here and the scene is burgeoning and growing all the time and I, I hope you will take the time to uh, maybe check out some of the some of our past episodes but you know I'm I'm just really pleased that we're only a few as I record this I'm only a few days away from the dawn of spring things are warming up music festivals are gearing up hinterland in Iowa dropped an amazing lineup I mean it was pretty much the same lineup that was supposed to appear there in 2020 with Krungbin, Leon Bridges, uh, Avet Brothers, oh geez, Marcus King is going to be be there. Just this amazing lineup, and it made a big splash, at least as far as Midwest festivals are concerned, whenever they announced that they were going to be coming back. Full steam in August, and it's really exciting. Uh, Mike D., Mike Dennehy, and I are working and gearing up for Peddler's Jamboree, Bicycle Music Festival. Uh, it's going to be here in Missouri in late August. And, uh, you know, we normally do it on Memorial Day weekend, but we push back to Labor Day weekend this year. And uh, it's the biggest bicycle music festival in the world, if you're not familiar with it, and just an absolute blast. You ride about 30 miles on uh, the Katy Trail here in Missouri. Uh, we're going to overnight in the state capital of Jefferson City, where the main stage is going to be at. But we also have day stops all along the way and have a, you know great regional and national acts and across stages all across mid-Missouri. It's, it's just a really good time, and I'm, I'm really excited that things are just starting to feel a little bit normal a little bit you know i we have a hydraulic stage that we own as for our events that we put on uh and but we rent it out to other people whenever we're not using it and we actually had our first stage gig rental just this last week uh in rolla missouri and it was it was an emotional experience for me just to see live music and it was a bunch of it was cover acts you know but it didn't matter it, whenever just the the first band started going through soundcheck i got emotional because it's it was just so something that was just so frequent and such a huge aspect of my life prior to covid it it, it seemed almost alien at first and uh man it was it was really great really cathartic and you know if i'm if i'm being real uh you know rala has zero covid regulations so i was i was on a block of people where literally the only two people wearing a mask was myself and the sound engineer what's up trent uh the <laughs> we were the only two people wearing a mask on a street of you know these uh, belligerent, not belligerent. They, they were having a good time. They, you know, they were they're you know, drinking and having a good time with their St. Patrick's celebration there in Rolla. But it felt good. It felt like the first step into some semblance of normalcy. We're st- and we're starting to get a lot of uh, people reaching out about renting the stage too, which is a good sign. So, you know, just uh, get vaccinated, man. The sooner everyone gets that shot in their arm. The sooner we can get back to that place where maybe we can just go out and enjoy concerts again and not have to be worried about inadvertently killing (laughs) 
<laughs> older loved ones in our family or friend circle. But I digress because in all honesty, nothing I've said here at the top can even hold a candle to what uh, this conversation that I had with Julian Baker. So we're going to take a short break. And whenever we come back, we're going to be talking with Julian Baker on the Big Money Music Hour podcast. So stick around. The Big Muddy Music Hour is presented by Le Bourgeois Vineyards. Located in Rocheport, Missouri, Le Bourgeois Vineyards has been a Missouri winery for more than 30 years, with over 20 different wines ranging in style and sweetness. Le Bourgeois wines are available at local retailers or online at MissouriWine.com. Support also comes from Ozark Mountain Biscuit Company, offering southern-style sandwiches from their food truck and take-and-bake buttermilk biscuits in the freezer section at Columbia Area Hy-Vee's, Clover's, and The Root Cellar. More information at OzarkMountainBiscuits.com. Support also comes from Pizza Tree, offering a wide variety of sourdough-crusted pizzas, salads, beers, and more at their location at Cherry and 9th in downtown Columbia. Now offering breakfast, Pizza Tree can be ordered online at PizzaTreePizza.com. Support also comes from Amber House Bed and Breakfast. Located in historic Rocheport, Missouri, this full-service inn offers lodging and dinner service open to the public with locally sourced ingredients, a rotating wine list, and an in-house masseuse. more information, visit AmberHouseBB.com. Support also comes from Lizzie and Rocco's Natural Pet Market. With two locations in Columbia, Lizzie and Rocco's is a locally owned natural pet food store. Lizzie and Rocco's nutrition specialists can create custom diets for pets, now offering positive reinforcement dog training. For more information, visit lizzieandrocco's.com. Playing what's relevant in music from the country of the Midwest and beyond, you're listening to the Big Muddy Music Hour, presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards. My guest this week is none other than an indie rock goddess whose new album, Little Oblivions, uh, was recently released on Matador Records, and I want to welcome Julian Baker to the Big Muddy Music Hour. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be on the Big Money Music Hour. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled. Uh, mm. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your Aww. your songwriting. Uh, I really like Little Oblivions, and I can't wait to uh, talk about that. But I generally ask the same question to all my guests at the top of the show because I'm always curious what sets performers out on their musical journey. What inspired you at a young age to say, you know what, I want to pick up a guitar and sing songs for people Ooh, oh man I okay I I liked music and I liked playing piano and I liked you know fiddling around I took piano lessons for a little while but what really made me be like wow I want to be in a band and write songs and perform was going to see Under Oath at the skate park Nice. I, I, yeah, seriously. That's well, that's not the band I was expecting to to hear you mention. That's 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 really cool. Well, no, I was huge into Under Oath, and I found out they were playing at the skate park from like some other kid in my neighborhood, and it it blew my mind because until then I thought of concerts as something that happened at in a stadium, and you either were to that level or you were playing at a coffee shop. You know, because I was a kid, I didn't have any metric, 
and one of my friends was like under oath is playing and i was like oh i have under oath on my ipod like i would love to go see that and it blew my mind that it was just like ten dollars for the show and i went and i saw at spencer chamberlain just on stage losing it screaming into a microphone and i was like wow that's what i want to do because that's what i feel inside and <laughs> i don't know how to express it and so i want to be in a band and i want to make loud music and i want to scream and then a couple of years later i was in a high school band with a bunch of my friends and i, I did a lot of shouting it was fun <laughs> It was good. It was good for my psyche, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was that was kind of my thing too. I I, I listened to heavy music and whenever uh, that was the type of music. I mean, my band even to this day still plays pretty heavy music. But there is something catharsis about cathartic rather about being able to to scream into a microphone. You ever think you might play like heavier tunes in a, a side project at some point? God, <laughs> I mean, is that, do you... God, I hope so. God, oh, I hope yeah. so. I've been wa- waiting for like how and when that's gonna manifest but like i would love to even if i'm not doing the vocals for it because i like i did i like i've done like whatever guest vocals on like a couple of my like friends like screamo band songs and it's i don't want to say it's bad it's just not what i wanted it to sound like i wanted to have the like like jeremy bolm touche amore um every time i die uh, Heath Buckley kind of like growl. Yeah, all, yeah. All that I'm capable of producing with my tiny, uh, five foot tall lady lungs is like, like a barky, like a shout. And I just like, I that would be great if I were making like traditional hardcore music, but I wanted to make metalcore, so I just gave up on trying to do hardcore vocals. Anyway, the <laughs> so now I just sing. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> well, I have to say, Julian, I did not expect within the first five minutes of talking to you that we'd be talking about every time I die. I'll just <laughs> say, say that much. And if you're ever looking for a guitar player collaborator, I would love to play guitar in your hard rock band. So nice. Just hit me up. <laughs> I will uh, hit you up. <laughs> so you, what was this? The ver- you, you mentioned a first band in in high school. Uh, what, what what was the name of that? And what was what was that all about? Oh my gosh, it was called the star killers um because that was luke skywalker's like whatever original name and then they changed it because it was too obvious with like the whole death star thing i don't know that's a piece of lore i heard i could be wrong but i just heard that and of course i was like 15 years old i was like that's a sick band name so then we were the star killers and it was me and my friend matthew i just i met him at like my friend's birthday party and he was like into the rocket summer i was into the rocket summer he was into circus survive i was into circus survive we were just literally doing that bro thing where we just like we're like hey you know this band yeah me too they're cool um for like an hour (laughs) and then we became uh lifelong friends and we played in a band in high school together for many years and uh later played in a band i was in college called Forrester which was like kind of the same band and now he's been playing drums with me like he played drums on the Seth uh, Meyers performance and on the Colbert performance um wow that sounded humble braggy I'm sorry that I said that but I'm like (laughs) those are just like the only visual representations I can think of like that's Matt that's the guy from yeah well there haven't been many opportunities or options for visual representations and besides it's it's awesome that 
that you played Seth Meyers and Colbert. It's great that you're, you know, in my mind, you've been a pretty well-known name in the indie rock sphere for years, but this album definitely seems like uh, not really a a step up necessarily, but it's, it's, it's definitely, you can tell like you put a lot of hard work into it. And I'm really happy to see that it's getting such a great response because it's definitely my, uh, my favorite thing you've dropped so far. I've read that you were raised in a pretty religious family, right? Sure. And I also read that you came out to your parents as gay whenever you were 17 years old. And uh, and you had read it also that, you know, you had known people in that time that actually, like, went in through conversion therapy. Now, I've also come to understand your parents were very accepting, even though you were raised in a religious uh, household, and, that, and that's, that's great to hear. But I've never talked to anyone that has even known anyone that's actually gone through that. And I'm, this isn't necessarily music-related, but I'm just, I'm just curious what, what that was like from the outside and, you know, or in a peripheral sense, uh, you know, seeing that maybe happening with some, some friends of yours, because it's obviously a very destructive thing in my mind. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I think I, my parents were accepting of me and maybe not like encourage, like, you know, they're not, they weren't out here because they were people from a different generation raised in like a rural place. So like, I can't expect them to like, and I know this is going to sound so, I realize that that could be a toxic uh, opinion to express, but it's like, I, d- I didn't feel like it made sense to expect them to like 180 all of their cultural conditioning in like a day. And I mean, now we have a great relationship and my parents are like the biggest advocates for, for my happiness and my happiness in my relationships. Um... But I think when I told, like, telling that story and telling the story of having accepting parents who were supportive of me and who didn't ostracize and exile me is useful, but it also, like, I'm I'm actually kind of glad that you asked about what it was like to have friends that went to conversion therapy. I mean, it's like, because I think I run the risk in painting this very accepting and neat picture of like well my parents were fine with it they were super supportive um i run the risk of diminishing how like that may be the case but it doesn't mean that like queerness was not and it doesn't have to be traumatic for everybody it queerness doesn't have to be this like taboo loaded negative thing where you come out and it's just like fraught with horror and pain but it's very real to talk about the negative experiences of like being a queer person in memphis at that time i mean it's like i don't know if you know what love in action is there, there's a there's a book called um boy erased that uh talks about uh, a young man's experience at love in action but it was this massive uh base like extreme conversion therapy facility and knowing people that went there where you aren't allowed to make contact with the opposite sex and where you're put through the most unimaginable rigorous like emotional abuse is horrifying it's horrifying you know and it's like my parents me and accepted me and I was very 
fortunate in that, but it didn't insulate me from knowing that queerness was not something that was like necessarily queerness was something that was like acceptable to a lot of people in my life and to a lot of the like cultural communities I was around specifically in church and there's no way I mean I'm not even comparing my experience to that of my friends who will probably have emotional baggage and not probably will have you know emotional damage and emotional baggage for the rest of their lives but like just being a witness to that as a real way that people think about a thing that you are is really scary <laughs> it's really yeah. scary and it's really alienating and i don't know if it was like maybe that's what because you know i i feel like i spent a lot of my earlier career as a songwriter kind of championing the the possibility of reconciliation between queerness and specifically the Christian faith and now I kind of have a a different idea of like what God means or entails and I can separate that from the faith tradition I was raised in but I think it was so important to me to I mean to the degree that I became almost obsessive about it um with like understanding scripture and understanding theology because i i saw that being done by a church i mean it was you know love and action is like associated with like the baptist church in memphis and it's i just i it didn't add up to me and also it felt so exclusionary that it was like it became this thorn in my brain that I couldn't let go this like itch I was always scratching trying to figure out like why why would somebody why would somebody name that organization love in action yeah. what does that mean you yeah. know what I mean and so maybe that's why maybe that's why um for better or for worse I was so vocal in like my early 20s when like sprained ankle and turn out the lights was coming out about my faith and about my interpretation and about um of uh the whatever the idea of the gospel and like what it actually meant because i was like there has to be some other way and i felt like that was the way that i could solve that issue was by figuring out figuring it out within the context of christianity and and now i don't think that that's true and that's actually kind of limiting but you know that's i mean yeah sorry that's no, obviously no, that's like that's... a big nerve for me i'm like no yeah you want to no. know how i feel about conversion therapy i feel like it's an abomination and a crime <laughs> but, absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. <laughs> i mean that's that's part of why i was interested in it because i you know that that caught me when i read that because again i've just i've you know, I, I haven't been close enough to it to even like to even know somebody that knows somebody that went through it. And I, I too, am just appalled by it. I honestly feel like that, that if anyone was truly a, a 
you know, someone that, that followed the, the scripture in the way it was intended, you know, would probably feel this, the same way. But th- there's a lot of, you know, culture war stuff that happens that gets people to a place that, where, you know, they get intransigent about things like gender politics, p- particularly, you know, as it relates mm-hmm. to, the, to the church itself. And right. so, you know, that's, it, you know, it's, it's something that I don't think is talked about enough. And, and I, and, uh, you know, I, this is a music show, obviously, but, but it's one of those things that, you know, I'm, I'm really, I want to thank you for being so, uh, being so open to, 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 to talking about it because, uh, I mean, I would have to imagine, I, and I mean, this was going to kind of be another question. I mean, spirituality is a really strong theme in all of your music. And uh, even in this most recent album, you're talking about faith healers and, you know, saviors and, and things of that sort. And I would have to imagine that these first three albums in particular, it has had, a, especially considering the fact that, you know, it did leave enough of an indelible impression to have you relate it to a thorn in your head. Um, (laughs) These albums have probably played a big part in you just trying to work that work through that and, and having experienced it firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, thank you for, thank you for, you know, being willing and open to that conversation because it's so funny, like, I, I now, I've radically changed the way that I think about God and the way that I think about my spirituality, and yet I still find myself here because I was so vocal about it, um, and because I wrote uh, so openly about, like, specifically the Christian faith on my first two records and spoke about it in interviews. It's like I find myself returning to that topic in interviews, and at first, like, I think... I got to a place with this record, because you are right, like, I, I mean, listening back through the music that I have made throughout my life is just like a document of me figuring out how I feel about God. And you know, that's not everybody's experience. Some people were raised in a secular household, or some people just don't have that internal turmoil, um, and they're able to just compartmentalize it. But for me, it's always just been at the forefront of my mind a lot. And, you know, even with this record, where in my personal life, I've radically changed how I think about how we define God or like how God manifests in the world or what that even means. Um, I still feel accountable to my younger self and to the people who are in the position that my younger self was in, where they have no other choice because of circumstance than to view the world through a through the lens of like the Christian worldview. And so now it's like I almost I thought I didn't want to talk about God anymore because what's so frustrating to me now like going back and reading interviews or things that i've i've said about faith and spirituality is like i had no clue i i didn't know any better than anybody else but what happened was i wrote songs about god i was trying to work through them in my own life and then people started asking me questions about god and i had an elevated privilege i had an uh, i had a larger than normal platform to speak about these things and i wanted to do some good and 
after everything that I've seen about the, the animosity from the church towards queer people, but just any number of marginalized communities, I was like, can I unwork this? Can I meet a person where they are at with biblical literalism and use like scripture to change their mind about it? And I still think that's a worthy task, even if I don't necessarily believe the Bible or any religious text to be literal does that make sense like I oh, still absolutely. Yeah. find myself yeah. engaging in the in these uh discourses specifically in the realm of Christianity because you know it's like I I wasn't born and raised from the time I was a baby memorizing verses from the Bhagavad Gita or from the Quran I was I was born and socialized with the Bible and so it's like those are the tools that are available to me to help participate in this discourse with a whole bunch of other people who were raised in an American evangelical context and try to unravel all of the Never mind. I was going to swear, but all of the. No, hey, you. By the I, way, feel free. I, I can. I, it, this is going to air on the radio, but I can bleep it. And oh know, my god, all of I too. fine. All of the bull. Yeah, all of the bull that is getting in the way of what I think faith traditions are supposed to do, which is instruct us about how we can best treat each other lovingly in our communities, and then inevitably they get turned into something that is empirical empirical and irrefutable and then they get weaponized and i think that's something that like it's i'm just passionate about it and i don't know it's like my friends make fun of me because i'm always talking about god <laughs> but it's like it's important what you think of what how you imagine god is like if you imagine god at all is inevitably going to govern how you treat other people and how you act in this world. And so it's like, if you want to establish a more loving society, you do have to like ask those questions and have those discussions with people. Um, wow. Sorry. This is no, 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 like... no. This is, this is, I, I mean, I, you know, and I, there's other, there's other things I want to ask you, but I, I, it's hard for me to get off this topic because this is a really good and really worthwhile discussion. I was raised, you know, my, my parents were hippies. My, my mom was, was religious for the most part, but what she did was she took me to different churches, you know, and, and I went to, I went to a Baptist church and I went to non-denominational churches. I went to, you know, yeah, black churches, you know, that were super high energy with the big choirs and dancing around. And, you know, I studied the Bible and I was, I was able to extrapolate and pull from it. You know, I, for me personally, I don't care who you are, you look at the teachings of Jesus, and that's just how to be a good human being. Like, the, the best part of the Bible is, is everything that, that Jesus tried to, you know, walk the walk and, and do the talk, you know? Sure. Unfortunately, there's a there's a litany and a huge, you know, depth of text that people can extrapolate a lot of, 
you know, uh, lines from the Old Testament and make it, use it as justification or a cudgel to grind whatever cultural acts that they might want to wield at the end of the day. And that, to me, was the biggest thing that pushed me away from away from the church at a young age was was seeing that side of it. Not all churches were like that. Not all pastors, like there, there are some, there's a lot of religious organizations and good, you know, pastors out there that are doing good work, you know, in their, in their communities and lifting their people up and and helping them but there's also you know you mentioned the baptist church that was my least favorite (laughs) experience of any of the churches i went to because i was like this just i i felt I felt judged just by sitting there. Like the judgment was, was just like, you know, the, it's with a lot of those churches, they say, Oh, come up and take communion. But only if you agree with these bullet points that we're going to put upon this projector here. So if you agree with these things, then come up and take communion with us. And then if you're a new person, that's not from that church, they throw that up there. And, you know, I look at that list and I'm like, I guess I can't take communion with you because oh my I'm God. not, I'm not, I don't agree with that. And everyone in the aisles just looks at you while, oh while gosh. you sit there and it, because, you know, it's like, I'm not going to lie to you and, and just sure. it'd make you feel better because, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, like that, that's, that's not the right thing to do. So, no, you know, totally. And I mean, I would honestly, uh, not challenge you, but I would add on to that, that like the thing I've been deconstructing and trying to be more knowledgeable about is that and this is again this is something that I feel like I talked about so flippantly as a younger musician um but a a lot of hmm, it's not just Christianity but Christianity is what I know the best so it's the example I'm gonna use um there is this the first assumption that you make when you walk into church is that you are in need of God to save you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but from what and to what? Like, so like basically what I'm, I have a problem with the idea of original sin. I have a problem with the idea of telling children in Sunday school from before they can read that somebody had to submit themselves to death because you were born bad and because the only way for God to love you, I mean, like, it, and it gets spun in so many ways that can seem really lovey-dovey and gracious. Like, God loved the world so much that even though we're all evil, he <laughs> killed his only son so that he could maybe love us if we follow God's rules, which were made up by man uh so anyway like that just doesn't like add up to me and the character of god and what's more i think that when you combine that with i mean like in my own experience it's like for so long i mean throughout high school it's like i understood queerness as a choice i wasn't able to not make if that makes sense, you know what I yeah. mean? It's like there's something fundamentally flawed about me. And then it's like, whatever, like queer or uh, predisposed to being an addict or um, whatever. Somebody with anger issues, it's like whatever is in you, it's because you're human and you're flawed and you're broken and you always will be. And the thing that you need is perfect God to fix you. And like, I think that's really, really bad to teach a person. 
because then it teaches you that humanity at its core is bad. It teaches you not only to expect that from yourself, but to expect that from other people. And it also gives you a pass to be judgmental about someone who is not going about being a better person in the same way that you are. I don't know. I, I have a lot of gripes and what? I feel like, but also it's like, I I get so mad at myself for running my mouth off about something I didn't and will probably never know the first thing about. I mean, like all human beings, it's just arrogant to think that we know anything about whatever divine world may or may not exist. Yeah, I, I practice yeah. in the church of I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's like, here I am sitting here being like, here are my new ideas about that are probably equally as wrong. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I think it's much more effective to just like, I'll say this, it is healthier for me in my own life to focus more on how I treat people and to focus on my human relationships and how to go about being more loving in that way and less arguing about the rightness of an ancient text and how much bearing that does or doesn't have on God, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. It's just not useful to me anymore. Um, well, you, I mean, you mentioned judgment, and we're, I am going to move the conversation yes, back to sorry. music. No, no, it's okay, <laughs> because I feel like I could talk to you about this for a very long time. Um, sure. Because, I mean, a, not to the same extent you have, but, I mean, it, I'd have to say that I mean, there has to be most families in the U.S. have dealt with religion in not an adversarial way, but, you know, that, that it can play, it, you know, create rifts at times. And it's yeah. it's a it's a difficult discussion. I'm glad that you were open to have it. I I've I, I've re really enjoyed it, uh, honestly. But I also want to thank you for for, uh, you know, being brave enough to push the needle on that, because, you know, I, you almost said something earlier while you were talking about it, you know, along the lines of, you know, just trying to frame the conversation in a way to where at least people that might view it on, you know, from a very hyper-religious conversation might be open to something else, open to a different perspective. Maybe, you know, and you know, like you mentioned it with your parents, they're not going to make a big 180, but all we can do, whether it's religion, politics, or just common good and what's right for humanity mm -hmm. is push the needle, you know, yeah, like, totally. we, um, you know, is, is just try to use what's right or what we think to be right and facts, you know, because I, I mm -hmm. think those still matter. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, uh, just try to keep the conversation going. And, you know, I'm a, a for as rough as, you know, the last four years in particular have been, I'm still an optimist and I still believe in, in humanity. Uh, it's not always yeah. the pretty, it's not always the prettiest thing to look at, but you know, as long as people like you keep on moving the needle, then hopefully, hopefully we can uh, land in a, a, a good spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, true. And all you can expect to do is like a little bit of work, you know, many hands. Yeah. Light work. It's just a little bit just throwing your lot in with the cosmic chaos. You know, it's all you can do. <laughs> All right, so back to music. Uh, Let's do it. <laughs> by the way, you're listening to the Big Money Music Hour presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards. My guest is Julian Baker. So you were signed and released your debut album in 2015, uh, Sprained Ankles, the name of the record. 
How old were you when that first album dropped? Tell me about that experience of having, you know, success at, at that age. Because, I mean, you're, you're what, in your 20s right now? And this is your, yeah. you know, third third major release that you're just dropping. And, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the sky's the limit in terms of where, you know, you're going to go throughout your career. But tell me about those those moments whenever things first started really getting traction for you. I had I, I went uh, to school initially for audio engineering technology, and I had a friend in my program named Michael Hegner, and he interned at a studio called Space Bomb in Richmond, where he was from, and asked me if I wanted to come up there and use the time. Because, I mean, I used to just, like, lurk in the quad area of, you know, the, you know, the courtyard of colleges, and I just was so hungry for any chance to make music and so it would be you know like sometimes my classmates would be like hey I have to make an assignment where I like it's an assignment about like miking acoustic guitars or whatever like just you're in the studio do you does anybody want to come record a song and then it would be like me showing up like Joe March just being like I've got 10 songs in my head right now um (laughs) so it's funny because it was actually just kind of like this is I don't want to call it a fluke because that kind of minimizes the like that's why I told the story about being down to just record at like crazy hours of the day and down to play any show that I could get on because it wasn't like a fluke that randomly happened like all of a sudden this one label heard my music and then I got like on NPR randomly it's like it was a lot it was so much grueling work and I never expected it to pay off. And I guess maybe that's why it did feel sort of like a fluke to me because I I wanted for my band that I was in to come up and record a handful of songs. But it was 10 hours away. We were all working multiple jobs, broke, and in college. And I just rode up there by myself and recorded some songs that I had written that didn't fit within the Forester project and then that is what led to me being recognized on a larger scale as a musician and I've always kind of felt that's why um I don't know that's why it was so important to me to like have Matt come and play on the live captures of this record because you know it just it was a little bittersweet kind of. And also, you know, I was 19 years old when I put Sprained Ankle up on Bandcamp. And then a label reached out to me and was like, hey, take this down because we're going to do like a proper release and press vinyls and stuff. And I was over the moon. Um, But then I was like, hey, I'll only sign with you if you also sign my band. Uh, And then I was like, okay, I'm going to put out this record. And then, I don't know, I kind of imagined it like And this isn't knocking Jeremy Enoch, but like Jeremy Enoch put out a bunch, like a a handful of solo records, but his thing was like Sunny Day Real Estate, right? Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. it's, and then he like put out other stuff to fulfill what like a creative impulse. I don't know. I don't, I've never met Jeremy Enoch, but I kind of wanted it to, I wanted Sprained Ankle to be like that kind of thing, just something I put out to fulfill this creative impulse and then really hit it hard with my band and then. A, a, like less than a year later I got signed to Matador and my life just took a very different turn and my bandmates were all really supportive of me but I just had absolutely no idea how to handle 
what was happening on the scale that it was and also it's just like I, I try to keep this in mind but like I very quickly got overwhelmed by being like a musician who was in like who took up a little bit of space in the public awareness like I can't imagine how it is to have been like I don't know I I'm like a sucker for I watched like the Justin Bieber YouTube documentary and like the Taylor Swift documentary because I was just like wow if I had a full-on mental crisis about the very in the scheme of things uh medium success that I mean like I'm 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 so happy and blown away by the fact that I get to do music by my job everything that happens to me is just like unbelievable I cannot believe that I am at where I am in my life right now but it's like if this is overwhelming to me like I can't imagine being those people yeah. you know mm -hmm. and so I don't know I think it was really weird and like you know we talked about this a little bit already but like when you're so young I mean like I was a child yeah. I wrote the songs on sprained ankle when I was literally still a teenager um I'm writing these songs about like you know sadness and addiction and i'm not even old enough to legally buy alcohol you know so i'm writing from a very limited perspective and then all of a sudden i had like an elevated position to speak on these things and like i am just now realizing like how actually crazy it is to go through that so rapidly even on a very small scale and feel like you have an accountability to the people that listen to your music, you know? Playing what's relevant music from the country of the Midwest and beyond, you're listening to the Big Money Music Hour. My guest this week is Julian Baker, and, you know, <clears throat> uh, you are actually the third of the trifecta of the group that is Boy Genius that I've had on the show. I've had Lucy and Phoebe on the show. Oh, so you're the last feather in my Boy Genius cap. And I love it. <laughs> so, you know, I was curious to get your perspective about how that project all came about. And uh, I also just wanted to get, you know, see, have you guys been keeping up with each other during COVID? I mean, both, uh, I mean, you, you have this album to drop. Phoebe had a huge year, obviously, if you ask her. I think she, she got snubbed at the Grammys uh, this last week. Uh, I can't wait for Elton John to hit someone. I know, I saw that hit. story. <laughs> I saw my favorite, my favorite response to that headline tweet from the Rolling Stone article was um, somebody, I thought this was very sweet and very funny. Somebody was like, Phoebe Bridgers is an incredible musician, with or without a Grammy, but I only have one chance to see Elton John hit someone. <laughs> and I was like, dude, yeah, I mean, and, you know, I would, I would agree, but, like, I would agree that uh, she got snubbed at the Grammys because Phoebe is one of my best friends in this world, and I love her greatly, and also, whether I'm biased or not because of our friendship, I think she is freaking genius and i think L lucy is too and i, I named think... punisher as because uh, you know i do a top 10 list for big money yeah. I, I named punisher the, the album of the year last year so it, she might not have totally won a grammy is. but at least she got Dude, that i guess well like who can't like i mean i don't want to be like who cares because it's important but it's like and i know that everybody wants to like hate on the grammys as an institution and this year i don't know it kind of felt like they were making a conscious effort to be like more inclusive because they recognized that 
if they continued being this monolith of just like handing out awards to like only straight dudes and like maybe sometimes a, a white lesbian like um <laughs> that they would um that they would start losing credibility and so it's like but also like i don't know like to me i'm just like dang phoebe doesn't need the acknowledgement of this dumb sure, institution sure, you know what yeah. i mean no like, totally I, mean, I, I also i get super defensive about my friends like for no, it's, yeah it's like the memphis you'll be punching people yeah yeah i'm just like she doesn't even need you get off like get out of here you know what i mean like i just i i am fierce i do find myself uh sometimes to a fault to be like fiercely loyal but um yeah I well just... if the grammys didn't happen this week i probably wouldn't have even mentioned them because I, I mean you know i'm not in a position to you know be considered for a grammy or anything but i generally most i just find most award shows to be silly at the end of the day now well that being said like the grammys have gotten some things right and maybe sure. <clears throat> and you know i actually did watch it last there it was we're record as we record this it was last night and uh you know i actually thought yeah as you mentioned like they they made some strong overtures i thought it was a well-produced program and everything sure. but yeah i mean all of you have so so much going for you that you know who needs a little a little uh statuette anyway <laughs> sure. yes <laughs> But just to be clear, she did deserve the winner. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. I got I got all off on a pride avalanche of my friends, which yeah. is what I feel like. And like, dude, I I feel you know, Phoebe had a, a an incredible year, and I feel like um, so I was talking about that because of like the whole Grammy situation. But like, man, Lucy's about to drop a crazy record. Like, she put out that one song. And people are freaking out about it because it's so good, even though it's like, it hurts me. But like, man, I just, it makes me so happy to see them like making just some of the most incredible music I've ever heard. And it's such a privilege to know them. Like, I know that sounds so like, sorry, I'm trying not to swear again. It sounds like no, I'm like blowing, blowing smoke, but like, yeah. I, uh, but I really do. I just think there's talented extremely talented individuals and it's just like anyway yeah long story short we keep up with each other and um you know try to like cheer each other on and i don't know hopefully we'll get back together and make music again but it's just been you know circumstantially limiting because of the whole global pandemic and everything oh that little thing yeah 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 <laughs> well i i can't wait for the day that we can get some new boy genius playing what's relevant in music from the country of the Midwest and beyond, you're listening to the Big Money Music Hour, presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards. My guest this week is Julian Baker, and let's talk about your new album, because cool. it's really good. Thanks. really enjoyed it. Uh, it's called Little Oblivions, and this is the first time, you know, that your first two albums were what I would call very ethereal. You know, there weren't necessarily beats behind, you know, pretty much all of it, right? I mean, there wasn't it mostly just you guitar and there was some other instrumentation on the second yeah, album? Yeah, there's like piano. I, there's little clarinets and strings on uh, Turn Out the Lights. There's like drums, like ethereal drums on like one, like a random cymbal swell. Or like accents and things of that yeah, sort. Totally. But, yeah, totally. You know, so <clears throat> Little Oblivions uh, has, uh, you know, a lot of instrumentation on it. You know, there's kind of a full band vibe with it. I really enjoyed it. I've been listening to it a lot. 
Um, and you actually, so I, something I guess I just didn't realize prior to you know preparing for our call was that you you produce your stuff, and whenever you were just talking, you were mentioning that you uh, went to school for re- recorded sound engineering. Um, so that's awesome because I think everything that you put out sounds really good, um, and I think that that's that's such a big piece and something that a lot of people take for granted, particularly with signed artists. It's like, well, it better sound good, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, sure. But yeah. the fact that not you're not only writing the stuff but also, you know, you're, you're producing every aspect of it. Uh, that has to, you know, give you, give you a lot of, I guess, uh, it, it extra, I don't want to use the word control, but, you know, give, it must be a, a, a different angle that, you know, not every artist produced their own records, you know, like who produced, you know, a particular album can be a byline in the promotion of, of a particular album. But to me, sure. like uh, the, I think the new album sounds, it's only has good songs, but I got to commend you because it, it sounds really good. Yeah. They, they actually, Thank you. The, the overall, I would be remiss if I didn't say that I worked with that, like, and it's, you know, it was very much a collaborative process between myself and Calvin Lauber. Calvin Lauber is a person who has been a friend of mine for like a decade. We grew up playing house shows together and he's always been like a recording engineering whiz. And I think I've always just been a person who like, jerry rig stuff just so i can get it to work <laughs> and so and like i think the the intersection of our personalities was really essential because like he he's the person who like knows how to run the console and then it's like me having a conversation where i'm like i want this guitar part to sound more squiggly <laughs> and then him just like knowing i mean and I, I maybe i'm i'm diminishing my my knowledge of like the terminology and stuff you know it's like i I'm fairly competent in like plugins and effects and uh, setting up and miking things, but it's um, it is very much a collaborative process or was with Calvin and I think he, our relationship is so special because we've spent so much time together and so and had so many different dynamics in our friendship. Like, we've been a band playing on the same bill at like some basement show and we've been friends who like all hang out at the sonic and like you know what i mean and and kids together and we've gone through a lot together and we have like this creative shorthand that i think is really helpful but yeah i mean when you say it's interesting that i produced all my own stuff like yeah i do i am maybe not controlling but i'm just very invested in how my music sounds and I've never known any other way to be because the context I grew up making music within was not like I'm a solo artist and I need a producer and like a hired band around me it, um, which isn't bad again I'm gonna say this that's not bad that's just different that's just not how I grew up I just grew up in a band and we had limited access to like recording resources and so we were in charge and like that's the only way i've ever known and i'm slowly i'm slowly starting to see the value of letting go of that control maybe a little bit to the point where it's like you know i played most of the instruments on this record did the production uh you know with calvin's help 
And I've always had this weird, like, chip on my shoulder about wanting to do everything myself so that the legitimacy of, like, my musicianship couldn't be questioned. Um, and I think that's honestly something that I want to change about myself. Like, I want to be more secure and, like, inviting other voices into... And I know that it's reactionary because it's, like, I grew up being a girl in a punk band around a whole bunch of other dudes and, like, I felt, you know, this reactionary need to, like prove things and do them by myself and and to not have anyone have any basis for saying that like my talent was exaggerated by whatever studio magic or like some force uh outside of myself but i don't know it doesn't necessarily always have to be that way and i'm i'm, I'm slowly learning that um Anyway, you were just complimenting that <laughs> that we did a good job making a good sounding record, and I, I I'll just say thank you. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, I really enjoyed it, and uh, you know, it, don't second guess what's been working for you so far. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, we're... but you know, I you whenever you uh, hit your next album, you know, if whether you produce it or not, everything you've done so far, I've, I've really enjoyed. And, uh, you know, but I want to go beyond the production and talk a little bit about your lyrics because I, I really am impressed by your lyrics. And to me, there's there's two types of lyrics. There's, you know, good rock lyrics that just sound cool and maybe don't really, you know, have that much meaning or they're, you know, or are didactic, you know, and telling you exactly what it's about. Um, mm -hmm. But then there are those people like you and, you know, Lucy and Phoebe that I think go beyond the didactic and actually create something that's poetic. I would call a, a good portion of your lyrics to achieving poetry, not just not just good rock lyrics. It works, yeah, you know, one and the same. <clears throat> And, you know, what makes great poetry great is being able to extrapolate our own meanings from the words and not be beaten over the head with the author's intentions. And some of my favorite sure. lines from your new album can uh, be found on the cut Relative Fiction. And uh, you sing, when I could spend the weekend out on a bender, could, do I get callous or do I stay tender? Which of these is worse and which is better? Dying to myself, virtually a massacre. A character of somebody's invention, a martyr in another passion play. I guess I don't mind losing my conviction if it's all relative fiction anyway. Now, rather than share what meaning I pulled from those lyrics, I'm wondering <laughs> if you might share some context and perspectives on this song with the dear listeners of the Big Money Music Hour. Sure. Um, man, yeah, that one has been coming up a lot in conversations, and it's like... It's particularly meaningful to me, I guess, because it might be the most forthright about just where I was at during the year I spent writing the record. But did you write the when? When did you write the majority of this? Was this like in the like middle of COVID or or before? No, it wasn't. It was before. Like this record was completely done. Basically, uh -huh. I think maybe we had to have it mastered, but um, it was basically done before COVID started happening. Um, yeah, so that was a little bit surreal, but. Um, with relative fiction, it's like, it's like mourning for me. Um, I, I don't want to do the obvious thing that I always do, but I'm going to have to, but like bring it back around to like my experience with God and faith tradition, but basically figuring out that like I lived my life so convicted about things that I realized were actually way more mutable and way more complicated and 
unfathomable than I realized. I was like, okay, so if I am losing my conviction about how to live my life in the world, what does it really matter? Because the things that we use to govern, like the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, the mythologies we believe in faith traditions, the political ideologies that we think are right uh, or are affecting some specific change are really at the most fundamental level can only ever be a story that you tell yourself or a piece of supposition that you're just guessing at and experimenting with and trying to like cobble together a belief system out of your cultural background and understanding that was super disappointing to me because I guess it takes some of the salience out of the the passion I had felt for, like, you know, what it meant to love people in a Christ-like way. What it meant to be um, anti-capitalist. Like, what it means to be, you know, I had all these convictions, and I allowed them to just sort of, like, dissolve into more of a gray area and while that was really difficult because you know I was looking back on my life like man I have been dedicating so much of my energy to causes I didn't completely understand it was also freeing because it was like all right well now I can be relieved of the constant need to live up to a specific set of behaviors in order to be in order to consider myself a good person I can just be a person you know, I can just be, that's why the last lyric of the song is like, I can just be okay, but not in the way that I thought that I was going to be. I'm not, maybe things aren't like what I thought, but maybe that's a step towards like being okay with myself. Well, that's <clears throat> a, that's a, I want to thank you for, for sharing the, that insight. And I can't think of a better note to close out our discussion. Julian Baker. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our talk. It was it was a really good discussion. Of course. Yeah. Thank thank you for having a thoughtful discussion with me and for giving me, you know, time out of your day to have it. Appreciate Absolutely. It. That's it for me, folks. I want to thank you for tuning in. Once again, I want to thank the incomparable Julian Baker for being my guest this week. Tune in next week because my guest is going to be Henry Hall, an up-and-coming national act. But keep on fighting the good fight, folks. And on behalf of everyone at KBIA and LB Creative, this is Colin Laveau, the Shameless Voice, signing off. Big Money Music Hour presented by Les Bourgeois Vineyards is produced by LB Creative and KBIA-FM, an NPR station from Columbia, Missouri. The show is hosted, written, and edited by Colin Laveau. Co-produced by Kyle Felling, Mike Dunn, Alicia Laveau, and Ruth Acuff. Theme song written by Pat Kay. Outro song written by Crip Trip. Videographer is Matt Matlack of LB Creative. For more Big Money Music Hour content, subscribe to the Big Money Music Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts. To hear on-air reruns of the Big Money Music Hour, go to bigmoneymusichour.com. Bye.